0: North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, We'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Today on The Impossible State, we have an incredible lineup. We have, as always, Dr. Victor Cha, Senior Vice President, CSIS, Korea Chair, and my buddy. We also have Dr. Lammy Kim, who is Assistant Professor of Asian Studies at the Army War College. And, Lammy, I want to go right to you. You have a, a just an amazing op-ed published in War on the Rocks called A Hawkish Dove, Question Mark, President Moon Jae-in and South Korea's military. In your op-ed for War on the Rocks, you explained the seemingly contradictory approaches by President Moon to national security. Can you tell us what you mean by a hawkish dove? There's a little bit of a contradiction in there, of course.
1: Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. And I'd like to state before we begin that the views expressed here are mine and do not necessarily reflect the official policy of the U.S. government. So I started this project uh, because I was puzzled by this contradiction where President Moon Jae-in, who is a liberal dove, was pursuing a military buildup. As the audience of this podcast should be aware, President Moon Jae-in has been pursuing the peaceful engagement policy toward North Korea. In 2018, he ushered in a detente on the Korean Peninsula, although a short-lived one, and he met with Chairman Kim Jong-un three times and facilitated a summit between the United States and North Korea. And the two Koreas also signed a military pact in 2018 aimed at de-escalating tension on the Korean Peninsula. On the other hand, President Moon Jae-in has been spending a lot on defense. South Korea's military defense budget has increased by over 7% annually, and uh, South Korea has been procuring sophisticated weaponry. So I was trying to figure out what is going on. And my answer is that President Moon Jae-in is pursuing a military buildup in order to pursue another goal of his national security policy, which is to transfer wartime operational control back from the United States.
0: Victor, you've had a chance to look at Dr. Kim's piece. Can you weigh in on this hawkish dove concept? It's really interesting.
2: First of all, it's really a pleasure to have Lammy on the podcast. Lammy is also one of our next generation scholars at CSIS. We and the USC select about a dozen every year from a nationwide search of you know junior faculty that are sort of the rising stars in this area, and so we're really happy to have her and to showcase her work on the on the podcast. And I think, I mean, the reason we wanted to do it was I thought it was a very interesting, perceptive, and correct piece about what looks like you know to many it looks like a bit of an anomaly because. You have this president in South Korea who's very aggressively trying to pursue engagement with North Korea, but at the same time is doing a great deal to build up South Korean military capabilities. and. You know, the question is, how do those two things come together and which is driving which? And I think probably the most interesting conclusion, I think, that Professor Kim reaches in the piece is that she concludes that the the policy that has the priority is the engagement policy to North Korea. Because if if we're really about building up capabilities for deterrence, then the moon government would be playing up and be be much more vocal about these capabilities that they're acquiring you know sea so, C- launch ballistic missiles you know defense spending global hawk all these things i think in particular you mentioned global hawk that they were actually soft pedaling the fact that they were acquiring global hawk whereas if this were really about building up capabilities for national defense and, and deterrence then a big part of defense and deterrence is signaling that you have these capabilities so that the enemy is deterred but her point is that they don't seem to be playing up those capabilities. So it really isn't about deterrence on North Korea. It's still about engagement with North Korea, and that a lot of these capabilities really are for the purpose of affecting OPCON transition, the return of wartime operational control from a US-UN US commander to a South Korean commander. So I think it's the piece is well laid out. It lays out the puzzle. It has an answer, and it's a take that I think is correct, and I just I just haven't seen it put this way. So kudos to War on the Rocks on finding Lammy and, and putting together this piece, and, and I'm glad we're able to talk about it on The Impossible State. Really interesting.
0: So for our listeners who might not know, Dr. Kim, can you explain what wartime opcon or operational control is and why that's important to uh, President Moon and the progressives?
1: So, operational control is different from command authority. So, command authority is the authority to oversee all aspects of the military. And most countries, sovereign countries have control over its full control over its military, right? But operational control in South Korea doesn't have wartime operational control, but operational control is only a subset of command authority. So important decisions or military guidance will be set by higher authorities, uh, but the operational control is just basically the authority to assign Forces to carry out the mission set by higher authorities. So, when South Korea was invaded by North Korea in 1950, President isman transferred full operational control to the UN command, who was at the time General MacArthur. And then that remained that way until 1978 when the two allies established the Combined Forces Command. In 1978, the commander of the Combined Forces Command, who is also the commander of the U.S. Forces Korea, took over operational control. But after the end of the Cold War, the South Korea took back uh, operational control during peacetime. And the two countries have been negotiating over completing the full operational control transfer since that point. And South Korean liberals have been pursuing operational control transfer, especially President Noomoyan was a big proponent of that. And President Bush uh, agreed to transfer operational control. But basically, I don't want to go into too much detail, but basically, South Korean conservatives have expressed concerns about completing operational control during wartime because they were concerned about negative repercussions of that on, on the U.S.'s security guarantee. However, for South Korean liberals, this is a very important sovereignty issue because they believe that, you know, any countries, any sovereign country should have full control over their militaries. And not having that is a sort of humiliating, a humiliating signal that this country doesn't have full national sovereignty and an ability to defend itself from North Korea's threats.
0: So, Victor, can I ask you on the other side of that, what, what is the U.S.'s view of and what progressives in the Republic of Korea and President Moon actually want to do with it?
2: Yeah. So I think the U.S. view is, yes, uh, this wartime operational control should be transferred to South Korea at some point. But it largely requires both countries having confidence that South Korean capabilities are at the right level, whether we're talking about intelligence capabilities or other sorts of capabilities, are at an adequate level such that this transition can be made with confidence and without any impact on readiness and uh, deterrence capabilities. You know, initially, as Lamy said, this was something that was discussed during the Bush administration with former President Noam And I was actually in the government at that time, and I remember these conversations very well. And um, at the time, Secretary Rumsfeld was uh, fully in favor of this and actually wanted to do it on an accelerated timeline. But I think for many of the um, professionals in the room and, and around, it was way too early, in part because the capabilities on, South, on the South Korean side weren't adequate yet. And, I mean, the, there was a real North Korean threat out there that only got amplified after they tested a nuclear device in October 2006. So where things moved then was instead of a date certain, like you know wartime outcome transfer must happen by a certain date, it moved to a paradigm where it was based on the conditions, a conditions-based return. And conditions-based means both the external threat and it also means the conditions within the alliance. And so that's where we've been so far. So to sum up, I mean the U.S. position has been – Wartime opcon should happen, but it should happen when the conditions are right for it to happen. As Lamy says in her article, this is an issue that has gotten very complicated and very confused and very political in the public discussion in Korea. You know, it's not a big discussion here in the United States, only for alliance watchers, but it's a huge issue in Korea that permeates South Korean society. You see it portrayed in South Korean movies and all sorts of things In reality, as Lamy talks about in the article, this is only one piece of what would happen in wartime. The bigger and the more important piece is that both the United States and the South Korean presidents have to agree on any actions that are taken within the alliance in wartime. And in the end, that ultimately is the authority. So it's really, it's been overplayed that it's this notion that oh, the United States can dictate everything that the South Korean military can do during during wartime. That is not true at all, right? But I think Lemmy would agree that that is, it often gets confused that way, you know, and that creates all sorts of misperceptions and makes for, you know, makes for strange politics as well.
0: Well, former President Trump seemed to think that he could dictate everything to the South Koreans. I take it as there's a different approach being taken in the Biden administration. Is this something that could happen During President Biden's four years, do you both of you think, or is it something that we're looking a little bit further down in the future?
1: Well, that really depends on how quickly South Korea meets conditions that Dr. Cha just talked about. The conditions are that South Korea, first of all, should have the ability to effectively lead the combined forces and also be able to counter North Korea's nuclear and missile threats. That is something that South Korea can try to do at least, but a more important decision more difficult decision to meet is that the security environment should be conducive to such transfer, uh, which means that there will be peaceful uh, environment on the Korean Peninsula that that is not necessarily within South Korea's control. And this, well, President Moon Jae-in tried really hard to complete the awkward transfer during his terms, but that is not going to happen. Partially, the process was delayed because of the pandemic, because the two countries were to determine South Korea's capabilities during military exercises, but those exercises had to be scaled back because of the pandemic.
0: So let me ask to both of you. With the South Korean presidential election next March, do you foresee military buildup to continue in South Korea? And what does that mean if so or not? What does it mean for the U.S.-ROK alliance?
1: Well, I think that this trend will continue because at this point, anyway, a presidential candidate, the Democratic Party's presidential candidate, Lee Jae-myung, is leading the polls. And he is somewhat different from President Moon Jae-in, um, but still, you know, he shares some beliefs and values with President Moon and some other liberals. And then he has been also a proponent of wartime operational control. And so I think that that is going to happen. And in a way, what does that mean for the United States? I think that in a way it is a good thing because if South Korea enhances military capabilities, that means uh, enhanced capabilities of the allies, the combined forces. However, on the other hand, I'm a little bit concerned about some discussions that American troops, American soldiers will have uh, about the operational control. Because if a South Korean commander commands the combined forces, then some Americans may have the same concerns about, you know, putting U.S. forces under a foreign officer, which is against the so-called Persian rule. And some uh, Americans would not be happy about it.
2: Victor? I agree. I mean, I think if the ruling party candidate is to win the election, that on this particular issue, they will continue to push hard, as the current government has done, to try to affect this as as, as soon as possible. I think, frankly, it's less based on assessments of military readiness and deterrence, and it's very political, because it's couched as regaining sovereignty, right? That's the way it's couched. Again, current reality and the historical reality is that even under this combined command when the United States had both war and peacetime control over forces, there were occasions in which the South Korean president would unilaterally do things with his military, you know, without informing the South Korean the US, the US commander at some critical points in South Korean history and You know, I think anybody who's any of the listeners who is familiar with South Korean history knows that this is the case. But nevertheless, it has become sort of this political objective by the progressives in South Korea, and I think they will continue to do it. If it's the opposition party or the conservatives that win, I think they will still focus on building up South Korean capabilities. They will continue to increase defense spending, maybe not at the same levels that the current government is doing. Uh, but they will continue to increase uh, defense spending. They will not push as hard for a timeline on OPCON transition, and they will really try to build capabilities in in conjunction with the alliance rather than separate from that. Could that mean things like more trilateral cooperation among the three allies, U.S., Japan, Korea, under the opposition party if they win? I think that would be more possible. It could even mean more cooperation on missile defense, bilaterally and trilaterally, that we might see if the opposition were to win. But on the um, progressive side, if the incumbent government and the party win, uh, I think we'll see very much the same message on OpCon transition as a single, isolated issue that they will want to pursue. Fascinating. So the other part of this podcast
0: is we want to discuss, Victor, your piece that came out in Foreign Affairs. And the piece really, the piece is called The Last Chance to Stop North Korea, but in the question mark, you know, kind of asking the question. And in your foreign affairs op-ed last month, you argued that there's another path to revive nuclear diplomacy with North Korea and to stop a coming crisis than the ones we've pursued so far. Could you give us a sense of what the piece said and why you think that this is an important argument?
2: Sure. I'd be happy to. First of all, thank you. This, I, I feel like we're in an academic seminar. We're discussing all these writings. I think, Andrew, this is from your experience from teaching at Tulane. You're becoming much more professorial in your hosting of these podcasts, but I welcome it.
0: Well, th- th- it's, good, it's good to know that it's, it's seeping in somehow because, as you know, Victor, I'm a rookie here, and uh, this, is, this is my first rodeo when it comes to teaching. So uh, I, I'm hoping to be more professorial as we go forward.
2: Okay, I won't tell the listeners you're wearing a tweed jacket and smoking a pipe right now. So.
0: <laughs> That's right.
2: So, you know, anybody who's worked on North Korea policy knows famously that this is the land of lousy options, right? There are never good choices. There are only bad choices and worse choices. And when I look at the situation today as North Korea has done some more testing recently – as I look at the situation today, you know, it doesn't look like the Biden administration is really very interested in engaging right now. You have, and I you know, don't mean to be crap, but you have a lame duck government in South Korea. China is not really interested in helping on North Korea, given the state of U.S.-China relations. Japan has just gone through a leadership transition, and relation, Japan is kind of sitting on the sidelines of North Korea. And Russia, frankly, is just being Russia, right? They're not, they're not involved at all. And so on this current path, I think we're headed towards a crisis because sooner or later, North Korea has been relatively quiet, but sooner or later, they will start to test more capabilities. And I'm not entirely certain, you know, once they do that, whether the Biden administration is simply going to fall back into, you know, diplomacy to try to reach another mediocre agreement that will then get violated two or three months later. I think they want to avoid that. So I'm just trying to look for a way to head off another crisis. And the one thing that every world leader, including the North Korean leader, worries about when they wake up every morning is COVID transmission. That's the one thing everybody worries about. And so, you know, the the idea behind the piece is that this is a very small step. I mean, in the broader scheme of denuclearization, diplomacy, humanitarian assistance is really small ball, but policy is about timing, right? And the constraints you operate in and we're at a moment now where you know a little bit of humanitarian assistance could touch a lot of bases, right? It could first of all address you know what I think the North Korean leader cares about. It would help with alliance relations with South Korea that's looking to engage more. It could help to actually deflect some Chinese influence in North Korea because the North Koreans have actually rejected Chinese vaccines. Right, and, and who knows? You know, it, can, it can avert a crisis because all of our data at CSIS shows when we're talking, the U.S. is talking to the North Koreans bilaterally, they don't really carry out provocations over the past three decades. And then who knows? Maybe that can then be uh, you know, a little bit of a stepping stone to broader diplomacy. So it's not a big move, but it's one given the timing that might be smart at this particular time. So that's the only point that I was trying to make in the piece. I mean, it, the response has been pretty good in the piece, I think, uh, from what I've seen on social media and, and things that uh, people have responded to the piece. But, but frankly, also, I'm not I don't think I'm saying anything that the Biden administration doesn't already know. Right. I, I'm sure they're, they're thinking about this, too. And, you know, clearly one of the challenges, even if they were to commit, you know, M- mRNA vaccines to North Korea, the, the, one of the big challenges, of course, is get the North Koreans to respond. They haven't really been responding to anybody recently.
0: Well, let me ask you both this. The, the North Korean issue, as you point out, Victor, has been a back burner issue so far for the Biden administration. But with five missile tests last month, things are heating up. So how do you both think the Biden administration is gonna to respond to more provocations by North Korea?
1: Well, actually, I was surprised that North Korea didn't start doing this earlier. Generally, North Korea would conduct provocative actions right after a new president is sworn in in the United States and in South Korea also. But I think that North Korea was also busy dealing with the COVID situation. Again, President Biden also has a lot on his plate. And then I don't think that North Korea is a priority for President Biden. But as Dr. Chan mentioned in this piece, I think it is a mistake not to deal with North Korea at all at this point, because if uh, Biden doesn't deal with North Korea, then he will be forced to deal with North Korea uh, in a more dangerous situation in the future. But I think that as long as North Korea doesn't test ICBMs, long range missiles, I don't really think that President Biden will have a lot of strong incentives to deal with
2: North Korea. So this administration is stocked with people who are very familiar with the North Korea negotiation. Many of them have been involved in the North Korea negotiation, going back to the six-party talks, some of them even going back to the 1994 agreed framework. So they are battle-hardened, if you will, when it comes to negotiations with North Korea. These are people like Kirk Campbell, Wendy Sherman. Yep, yep. Kurt Campbell, Wendy Sherman, and then below them, people like Laura Rosenberger, Edgar Kagan at the NSC, I mean, Sung Kim. I mean, these are all people that have been involved in it. And I can state this with absolute confidence anybody who has been engaged in negotiations with North Korea does not come out at the end of those negotiations confident that that these are going to be successful or that the next iteration is going to be successful. And of course, all of these folks were involved in the 2012 agreement, you know, the so-called leap day deal on the last day of February in 2012 that then fell apart two months later. So they're highly skeptical of this. So I think this in part explains why it's on the back burner. I think for all the reasons that Dr. Kim said, there are many other issues, but it's another reason it's on the back burner. I think if North Korea does cross the Rubicon and does do, you know, a major ICBM test or an operational SLBM test or launch a, a you know a, a ballistic missile submarine. You know, I again, I I think they're going to come back tough. I mean, I think they will go for UN Security Council resolutions. They will go for a tightening of sanctions even though North Korea is already self-sanctioning because of COVID. You know, I think they'll increase the efforts to stop proliferation by North Korea. I think they'll come back tougher, not sort of all willing to engage. And we have to remember that that sort of provocation, crisis, diplomacy cycle that we've seen in the past requires the Chinese to be involved, right? The Chinese, once the North Koreans create a crisis, pushing the North Koreans from behind saying, go back to the negotiating table. I don't think that Chinese help is going to be there this time because they're so upset with the overall state of U.S.-China relations. They're just not going to do that. So there's no floor, if you will, once a crisis happens. There's no interest by the administration in diplomacy. There's no help from China. Again, South Korea is a lame duck. Japan and Russia are on the sidelines. There's no floor to prevent this from spiraling downwards.
0: Finally, uh, you know, we have a few minutes left, but I I want to ask you both. What do we now know of COVID-19 and the situation about surrounding COVID nineteen in North Korea, Victor. We've talked before on this podcast about this issue with Steve Morrison and Dr. Kee Park of Harvard. But do we have more information now? And is there still a, a reported zero case in North Korea? Or you know, what do we know?
2: You know, I think we know a, a bit more than we did before, in the sense that I don't. I haven't met anybody now who believes that there's zero cases in North Korea. And there's anecdotal reporting of transmission in the military, as well as in other parts of the country. So it's hard to imagine that there's none. Um, What we do know a lot more of is how the closing of the border now for 21 months is wreaking havoc internally to the economy. That's for certain. We know that. As you know, we've been following this from very early on, almost the start of the crisis, because... We know based on our past research of how North Korea has responded to the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, to SARS, to the Ebola outbreak, that they, they do shut down like this. But shutting down for 21 months is unprecedented. They've never done this before. And this could easily be well over two years because you know everybody around North Korea is not at herd immunity yet. And even if they were at herd immunity, it's say 70%. I still don't think the North Koreans would feel confident about opening opening their border. The mystery to me is that they've rejected all of the offers of vaccine so far from Covax, from the Russians. They've even rejected, my understanding is, AstraZeneca. So you know, maybe they're waiting for the mRNA vaccine. Maybe they're waiting for a, 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 a offer of Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. But I'm not sure. I'm I, Dr. Kim. I don't know how you feel about it, but.
1: Of course, it is impossible to know what is going on inside North Korea. And I'm pretty sure, as Dr. Cha mentioned, that if the COVID situation was manageable, then North Korea would, not you know, shut down the border for that prolonged period of time. But I'm also very puzzled by the fact that North Korea rejected the offer to provide not only Sinopharm's Chinese vaccines but also AstraZeneca and so then you know I I guess that makes me think that North Korea is not really that desperate and so I'm really trying to I mean I'm just really puzzled by by that but related to that though I mean about economic situation because North Korea heavily depends on uh, imports and exports to and from uh, China and so North Korea's economy should be in turmoil already struggling uh, before the the pandemic but it must be really bad already in 2019 and 2020 experts were saying that North Korea was running out of hard currency and so I'm really curious to know how North Korea is surviving right I mean I understand that North Korea is probably making some profits from uh, engaging in cyber crimes and cryptocurrency related activities but I'm wondering if North Korea is engaging in some other potentially dangerous activities like you know I, I don't have any of evidence, but I'm concerned if North Korea is really desperate, then it may have some incentives to proliferate some missile technologies or, you know, some sensitive technologies.
0: I want to thank both of you for this really interesting discussion. To be continued, we certainly need to know more about what's going on in North Korea. And I I guess time will tell. uh, But the next things, you know, we want to find out is what is their current um, economic situation and the food situation. So, Food for thought for another uh, podcast of The Impossible State. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Kim, and Dr. Cha, as always, for your insight. If you have a question for one of our experts about The Impossible State, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro-website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.